We have been looking at Second Peter. Peter has been talking about the reality and judgment of false teachers. And that, of course, speaks to all of us, but especially to those of us who try to stand up and teach and say, thus said the Lord. We want to be accurate. We want to be clear that this is what God says, and we want to stick as much as possible to what he says so that we don't put words in his mouth. That's a fearful thing. Think about putting words in God's mouth. He who speaks, his word is his tool. And uh, he speaks and says, let there be light and there's light. We don't want to change that around and move things around in it. We have, we want to be as accurate as possible. Thank you for your prayer. I appreciate that. In this text that we're looking at, we sort of, it looks to me like it seems the most logical to divide it into two parts. The first part is what I've termed the warning of Peter, Peter's warning, where he warns about false teachers. He says, but uh, this is uh, second, second Peter chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. He's warning about these teachers that are coming. These teachers who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing about swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of truth will be maligned, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. We've gone through that, we've looked at that, and he turns, and from that point on, he begins to talk about God's wrath coming upon false teachers, and uh, is what he says, begins in the middle part of verse 3. He says their judgment, that is the false teachers, their judgment from long ago is not idle. and Their destruction is not asleep. Or if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, and he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having them, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, pressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what they, he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authorities, authority, dealing self-will, daring self-will, they do not tremble when they revile angelic. Majesties. So the second half is a, is a half in which Peter gives some illustrations of judgment. Those illustrations should speak very powerfully. God has, has spoken throughout history in areas in which there are there is obvious uh, examples of His judgment. 
And those examples should be examples that would cause us to sit up and to listen, to pay attention. The example, um, I, I belabored this other than when I was working at Lowe's, I was trying to think of an example that would illustrate this. And the one that comes to mind, and you've heard it, I've shared it with you before, took place when I was in the, when I was in school and um, I was promoted from the fifth grade to the sixth grade, and in that promotion, we moved from one building to another building, and we moved to the top floor. And the first day of school, they would have on the bulletin board, uh, as you mature in the educational system, you start doing things more independently. And so we were given the responsibility of finding our own classroom. And uh, so I'd go up, and I was in the sixth grade, and I looked up, and I saw that I was in Mrs. Johnson's class. And as I was thinking about that, somebody else said, oh, Mrs. Johnson, she's terrible. Uh, you don't ever call her Ola B. You always call her Mrs. Johnson and have a lot of respect for her. And it kind of created an air of caution in my heart as I went down, found her room. I went in, sat down, and sat down on the first desk of the first row by the door. By the door. And uh, as I sat there, the guy that came in after me, was uh, name was Luther Alford. He was sort of a clown. He was not a mean guy, he was just always doing stuff and getting into mischief and just very uh, sassy at times. And he sat down too. Mrs. Johnson, the teacher, was in the back of the classroom behind the cloakroom back there. And I don't know what she was doing and we were just rumbling and stuff. I didn't like, you know, you come in from the summer and you start school and you have to kind of buckle down, you have to straighten up and you're not your own boss anymore. You can, you have to listen to somebody. I didn't like that. I was kind of, I wasn't fighting it. I just was not, didn't want to be there and was looking forward to getting out and having my, being independent again. And I'm sure Luther was the same way. And he sat there with his legs sticking way straight out like that. I don't know if we'll forget that. Yeah. He was looking around and he just, he said, sort of kind of quietly, I can't believe I have old lady Olaby again this year. And she stuck her head around from the cloakroom back there. And she said, What did you say? When she said that, my heart just kind of jumped in my throat because I knew she had heard him. And I didn't know what was going on. I just heard about her. I looked around and I saw her looking there and I saw her looking over in my direction. I turned around and here she comes walking up the aisle. And I, I just looked like nothing going on. I was looking like straight ahead at the board. She comes up, she comes over to the desk over there to the left. She opens the door, pulls out the spaddle, comes back. She says, you call me old lady, old me. My name is Mrs. Johnson. You don't call me that. Get across that desk. Now this was, we had been in that classroom 15 minutes, I'm sure. And uh, she, she pulled him across that desk and she paddled him and she paddled him good. And um, I was thinking about that. You know, that paddling not only affected him, but it affected me as well. Because it taught me that uh, she's not somebody you want to play with. And that, that's a good illustration. In fact, I still remember it to this day. I've gone and I've shared that story with you three or four times. That when you have something, a demonstration of something like that that's graphic, like Peter is giving us here, he's pointing out some real judgments and some real things that God has really done through, through people throughout history, that these things should be examples that would cause others to sit up and take notice and change our lives. Some people have suffered under this judgment, don't let it be you, don't let it be me. I don't want to be the one to go through that. You, you, you've, uh, 
I'm sure you've witnessed things like that on TV and you've seen uh, people that have had accidents and done things and and you just, boy, I don't want to do that. I don't want to take that kind of risk or I don't want to do that. I remember sometimes when we were teenagers, people would pass, try to pass in, around the curve or something and hit, have an accident or something like that. So you try to learn lessons from things like this. And so here's what Peter's doing. He's giving us this warning and uh, he's giving us warnings about this. He starts out in that verse, um, he says, talks about their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. He's talking about judgment of false teachers and false prophets. False teachers and false prophets are those that stand up and teach things that are not true, that are contrary to the scriptures, putting words in God's mouth. God does not like it. He takes it seriously. And uh, the promise in this verse is there is judgment for those who do it. And it's a serious judgment. It's an impending judgment. It awaits those wicked people. And uh, the way he words it, it says from long ago, and it's not idle, means that the judgment that God has scheduled uh, is, in fact, on the schedule. When, it's, when, it's, uh, when he describes it as not being idle, he means that it's not just something that's waiting and seeing what's going to happen, but that it's timing and its accuracy and the, the planning of it is under construction and being built and it's being reserved for these people and it's active. And so it is not something to be toyed with. Sometimes we think about and do because God is gracious, God is merciful, and we sometimes think of him as kind of an old man upstairs uh, who's loving. Sometimes uh, fathers are a little bit more lenient with their daughters than they are with their sons because the girls are, they, they can kind of sprinkle up their nose and look really cute and feel sorry for them. That's the case of almost all fathers with their daughters, with the exception of Warner with Erica and Daddy, right? <laughs> he didn't have that. No, I can say that. We can Good. Okay. No, he doesn't. But uh, God is not that way. He's not. He's not just a, a gentle old man upstairs that you can kind of manipulate him around your finger. Um, the scriptures are clear that God will judge. There are many passages that talk about the judgment day of the Lord. Um, he told. He said. Paul says to the Thessalonians, "You yourselves know full well." This is First Thessalonians five one and three. You know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. Their labor pains like labor pains upon a woman with a child, and they will not escape. It's going to happen. Um, it's not idle. It's going to happen. It will not be delayed. It is aggressive. Deuteronomy says, the Lord is quoted in Deuteronomy 32, I will sharpen my flashing sword. My hand takes hold on justice. I will render vengeance on my adversaries. And I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword will devour flesh. With the blood of the slain and the captives, from the long-haired leaders of the enemy, rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants 
and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. It is clear God is going to judge. He will do it. It says in Isaiah 24, it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high, the kings of the earth, and he will, they will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and will be confined in prison and after many days will be punished, so on and so forth. It's, it's just a, a picture of judgment. God is going to do that. In Revelation, which is the last picture of Satan being judged before he's cast into the lake of fire before the thousand year reign, Revelation 20 says, I saw the Lord, I saw the angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss with a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold, and listen, he uses all the terms that we have with the devil. He says, He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and he shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. We know after that he is going to be judged and then cast forever into the lake of fire. And so um, these things happen. They are real. It is, it is easy to look at them and and sort of think that God is happy about doing this. And yet Ezekiel tells us that uh, the Lord does not delight in it. It's Ezekiel 33, 11 says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? That's the heart and the cry of the Lord who doesn't delight in that, doesn't desire to do that. To bring punishment, but he's going to. We don't repent. That's what that's kind of a balance there. And I'm glad that I know the Lord is merciful, I know he's gracious, but I know also that you can't play games with him. We fear him, we respect him, but we also appreciate him because he is a God of mercy and God of grace and God of love. And so this is really, really important. Well, let's look at the first verse here in this passage. This first example says, For if and that, this, this picture when he says, well, if God did not spare the angels, we, we uh, could translate that just as easily. In fact, MacArthur does that in his, in his study Bible. For since God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Here are angels who sinned. Um, Probably referring to angels who left their, their proper abode. Jude talks about this. This is a little bit strange because we don't think of, of angels leaving their abode and misbehaving. We know demons do that, but we don't think about that a lot. We think about us. But he says here, Jude 6, which is the next to the last book in the, in the Bible. Um, Jude 6 says, the angels who did not keep their own dominion, but abandoned their proper abode, which means that there is a realm in which they are assigned, there is a, an environment in which they are to function, there is a, a category of um, endeavor that they are to fulfill, but here are some angels who abandoned that abode, and those angels that have abandoned that abode, he has kept in eternal bonds, almost like handcuffs, if you will, or imprisonment, kept them in eternal bonds under darkness, for the day, for the judgment of the great day. 
And he uses the illustration just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Who are these angels who did not maintain their proper abode and it's listed as being the same kind of abandonment that took place with the homosexual situation taking place in Sodom and Gomorrah. And that leads us to think that these angels are the ones that are mentioned in Genesis 6 at the time of Noah's flood. Um, Genesis 6, verses 1 through 3, uh, says this. It says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves. Scholars kind of debate that, but most of the conservative scholars agree that that phrase "sons of God" is a way of referring to angels, those who were created by God, those angels, and that they they cohabited, they became like men, and you know that angels can do that; they can appear like men on the earth, and they. They did that with Abraham when, she, when the Lord and the two angels came to Abraham and communicated with him. They could do that. And uh, the, the scholars that believe that they did have cohabit with that, with men, I mean, with, with women that were beautiful, and they took wives of themselves, and they produced a kind of a mongrel race. Some, I was reading one writer, that believed that this was the kind of the seabed that later produced Greek mythology, where you have this mythology of some of these really uh, very... Um, superhuman beings that uh, that were exhibiting Nephilim and others like that, and so this this seems to have taken place early, early before the flood. The reason why we're not sure, but it seems to me like that this is one of the many ways that Satan is trying to corrupt the seed. After God promised to crush the head of the serpent, the seed of the woman would come. And he was trying to defile the line, the seed line so that the Messiah could not come. He's a lot smarter than we are, and he's able to see these things, and so he's trying to corrupt that line and pervert it before the Messiah comes. It's what it seems to me. Um, Arnold Gagelin talked about that in his book. He has a book called The Conflict of the Ages, which talks about that battle that goes through the genetic line. So anyway, what Peter is pointing out here in this text is that God did not spare these angels when they sinned. Uh, these angels that he created, but he he did something to them. And notice what he says. Peter, he says he cast them into hell. Now, the word there that's translated is actually from the word tataros, which is a word that's used by Greek mythology to speak of the very lowest point of hell, if you will. Um, think of hell as place of incarceration. Prison with maybe a good way of illustrating it, and I've, I've seen the, the uh, sort of a thing on Alcatraz as they go into the production of Alcatraz. I also saw another production of some of the of the prisons in Europe that were used uh, by previous generations that are no longer in use; they're just out of abandoned. But they have some in which they will have prison uh, place cells where people they keep prisoners. Then they have one place where they have this door, and they have steps going down, and they have a lower room like that. And they even have one, I remember seeing, where they have another uh, entrance that goes down to the very lowest place, the room that's dark, has no light. And the worst of the worst 
uh, put the worst prisoners of all in there. And, and of course, uh, in hell, it will be the worst men, the worst devils uh, that are cast. The Greeks thought it would be a place that the, the bad, wicked gods would be confined as well. And uh, but it, it's it's maybe it illustrates the fact that we have prisons, the fact that we have places to incarcerate people illustrates the fact that people that sometimes people are very wicked. And Solomon talks about that, and, and Proverbs talks about that. That there are people, some people, that the only thing that that you can do to them is have a whip that you can beat them on the back, and sometimes there are people that even that does not does not reach them. They don't listen. It's just it's. And I know from my heart that I can be stubborn. I know my heart can be stubborn. I'm, I know that I have a wicked heart. The Bible says that. It says that 17, Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, desperately sick. Uh, and that, that we are guilty of all kinds of things that we don't normally do because we're here and we're dressed up nice and neat. And uh, as if we are raised in a good family where we have been taught to obey, we've been taught that the world does not owe us a living, that we, are, that, that we have to be able to sometimes not get our way. You know, if, if you let your child get his way about everything, he's going to grow up thinking that if he can whine a little bit or become violent enough, he's going to get his way. That's not a joke. That's true. And sometimes we have a lot of criminals that do some I mean, people come up with guns and go into school, and a lot of times they do that because they have been raised thinking they can have their way just about everything. They don't know what it means to say no. They they think if the world tells them no, this is the unpardonable sin that they have. They have been mistreated worse than anything, and uh, that's the value of having a home and having parents and people that love you and people that that make you obey when you don't want to obey and teach you that you cannot have your way about everything, and you learn to be able to deny yourself about things um, that and, and realize that that's just part of life. Prisons are for things like that. And here, uh, Peter is talking about these angels that have sinned and done these things, um, and they are incarcerated like that. And he says that they, uh, in this place, the Tartarus, this place of the lowest of the low, and they are reserved there or judgment. He said they committed them to pits of darkness. I don't know really and truly why it's necessarily dark. All I do know that hell talks about being out of darkness and also a place of torment and suffering. It's a place that you don't want to go. It's a place that I don't want to go. And yet I have family members. I know that you have family members that you can talk about. Sometimes people can actually sit in church and hear us talk about these things. And turn around and walk out into eternity and and uh, be cold-hearted and not surrender how is it it doesn't make sense if you know what you're headed for i think that the fear would cause us to really seriously examine what do we need to do to be saved because we don't want to face that that's a horrible 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 thing and um yet it's it's there and so peter is just warning us about these false teachers They've been committed to pits of darkness. Um, and he says, and not only pits committed to pits of darkness, but they are committed into these pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Uh, there's no escape. You, you have 
Um, we have in our built into our makeup the ability. Uh, the, I guess maybe the the hope, if you will, the, the light of, of hope. There's always some measure of hope that maybe what we are head, headed for, like the virus, we're headed, or like our job, or if we if we uh, have a sickness, there's always a hope that we can do something to get better. It's never really a place where you're really hopeless without any hope until you're in hell. When you're in hell, at that point, there is no hope. There is no escape ever, 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 ever. For the rest of, for the, forever, there will be no escape. There's, there's hopeless. And that's a horrible, horrible thing. And that's the reality of the judgment that lies beyond the grave if we turn our back on Christ and walk away from him. You know, when you think about what the Lord, who he is, he's the Lord of glory, he's the creator, he is the sovereign. And you think about what he has done, that he has come and he has taken upon himself a body and he has gone, he has, he has bothered with us, he has labored with us, he's taught us, he has suffered, he gave us his word, his truth, and then he went to the cross and he was mistreated and spit upon. I, I, I know now that I have a beard, I know what it feels like to have your beard pulled out a little bit. I didn't have that like that before. But it can be painful. But that's just one of, of many things that, that he was mistreated, the Lord was mistreated and abused. And he did it for us. And we can't just turn our back on him and walk away like that and think that it's not gonna, it's not a big deal. It's a massive deal. When you think of who he is, he is the Lord of glory. He's the one that holds the universe together. He, there's not, uh, was it R.C. Sproul says, there are, there's not one rogue molecule. He's right. Everything is in cooperation with him. Yeah, there are demons that are working, and they are doing a lot of things, and he uses the rebellion of people, just like he did with Judas, to come to his purpose. He is the sovereign of the universe, and if I know he's come and given his life for me, I don't want to fight him. And yet, even to this day, there are times when I end up wanting to do what I want to do, not what he wants me to do. I'm very ashamed about that. I'm, I'm sorry about that, and I wish it weren't true, but it is true, and it's, it's, it's harsh. And we just need to, to be appreciative of who he is and what he's done for us and, and surrender to him. Um, and I, I, that's, just, that's one of the advantages I have every morning when I go to the Lord in prayer is to just go to the Lord and just thank him for who he is and what he's done. He's so good to you. He's so good to you. He's just, he's merciful, he's gracious, he's kind, he's giving, he's, he sacrifices. He's, he, Philippians says that he is a bond servant. He, he wants to serve. He wants to serve us. He wants to give to us. This is part of his nature. This is one of the things that he's doing in this particular uh, epoch, if you will, of, of uh, his working is, is to demonstrate that he uh, is, has come to serve, to give himself for others, because that's part of the nature of the sovereign of the universe. He wants to do that. He wants to do it from the heart. And uh, so we have, a, we have a good God. We really do. And we don't want to turn our backs on that because judgment, just like he is so good and merciful, his judgment is very severe. And we don't want to play games with that. So here is here is, is uh, uh, the first statement here, if you will. It says, for it is just as God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. 
and committed in the pits of darkness reserved for judgment. That is the first illustration that he gives of that. The second one uh, has to do with the flood of the ancient world. He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought flood upon the world of the ungodly. Um, you remember the, how they, Genesis talked about how they were living in sin and, and uh, abusive. Um, it made the Lord, at one point it says that he was sorry that he had made man because man had been in such a rebellious situation and rebelled against him. And it grieved him to his heart that he had done that. And I, I'm sure that's using uh, anthropological reasoning for us. He's using uh, human reasoning so that we can understand because we know that God knows everything from the eternity past. He knew he knows everything and it's not it's not it's not that he knows what's going to happen he knows what's going to happen because he's behind it he's using it and working, working these things apart working these things together for his lord who was it that i heard the other day talk about the difference between miracles and providence um they said that that uh, it is true that, that god when god performs a miracle he interrupts the natural processes of nature, of, of creation, and does what is against nature. He, he, he interrupts or undoes, for example, when Jesus walked on the water, the law of gravity and the, the, uh, the construction of water would not normally hold a man's weight, a man would sink. But in the case of Jesus, when he walked on the water and Peter really began to sink, he reversed that and he broke through the natural laws and was able to walk on the water like you would walk on the ground here. And uh, that's what a miracle is. A miracle is when God uh, interrupts and cancels out the natural laws, and only he can do that. Providence, on the other hand, is when God continues the laws and keeps those laws, but yet in spite of that, in spite of the ability of man to make the choices and decisions, God uses those together to bring about his plan. And in one sense, providence is a greater display of God's power than the miracle. Because he's able to use all these people and all these plans and all of these um, schemes that we have and the rebellions and the people that are mad at society as well as other people that are loving and wanting to do good. He's able to work those out to bring about his perfect will, his perfect plan, his way. And so this is this is this is uh, a powerful thing that God is able to do, and he, he works here in this world and is able to take these things and bring these things together to work out His will. And it says here, talking about the ancient world, he says God did not spare the ancient world. Uh, the 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 um, the time of Noah, when these people were living in rebellious sin, and uh, it said that God was sorry that he had created man. He knew what he was doing, but it tells us that it grieved his heart because it's a serious thing. Man's rebellion is serious, and it, it, was, it is something that bothered him. And so it says that he, uh, it uses the phrase that he grieved his heart. He was sorry that he created man, and he interrupted these things to provide a solution for that or a, a judgment for that. So he did not spare the ancient world, but it means he did not spare, he brought about judgment. What was the judgment? The flood. He brought about the flood. It was the flood of Noah. And um, Noah 
He says here in this text, it's interesting, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Noah warned, Noah preached, and um, probably um, as he was building the ark, that was a real testimony, 120 years of constructing the ark and telling the people God's going to bring judgment. And he's warning them and warning them, warning them and warning them for 120 years. We ought to go up to uh, see the ark sometimes because that's going to be something to see. But when you see it and you see how big it is, it'll be impressive to think about men doing that and doing that in that time when the tools, they didn't have power tools. They had tools. Man was smart. It's not that man was primitive like the stone age man. He was smart, able to do those things and to build them. But it's a massive feat of construction when you think about it. And yet he did it. And God used that to preserve life. And so here you have this picture here that, that Peter is reminding us that not only did God spare the angels that sinned, but he did not, he was also the ancient world. He did not spare the ancient world. But in the middle of that, notice that there was a, there was a preservation because this illustration is not only an illustration of judgment, but it's an illustration of God's ability to save or deliver those righteous out judgment that he brings upon the rest of them. Some that come under judgment and others that are delivered from judgment that are preserved. And here is a case, a good illustration here, that he brought judgment upon the ancient world while at the same time preserving Noah, who was a preacher of righteousness, one who was warning the people and preaching righteousness and also he's reserved or saved seven others uh, that were with Noah, seven of his family. And so here are these people um, there used to be a, a story I can remember that somebody was, was saying that um, they were coming and were warning the, the uh, it was a joke really, but the, the Noah was supposed to be warning the people of his day about the judgment. They were, they were asking him about building the ark and why they were coming and why they were building the ark. And the, the joke was that he was not allowed to tell them it was going to be a flood. But they were asking, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? And so on and so forth. So finally, he said, well, how long can you tread water? <laughs> and that was that supposed to be a secret way of telling there's going to be a flood. Well, actually, the opposite is true because Noah wouldn't tell. He was wanting to warn it with the judgment. You know what I'm saying? And so uh, the, the, uh, it says here that, the, that he did not spare the ancient world, the, the world of antiquity, but he preserved in the middle of that Noah, was a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, that was his family, when he brought about a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Uh, that flood, it's, it, it's, it's an interesting study. Um, Creation Institute has written several books on this, the flood and how the, the even the Grand Canyon, there's so much um, Ge uh, geological evidence to support the flood. I see that, watch the, the uh, National Geographic channel, and they have a lot of things on that that they talk about that they say that these things happened billions of years ago, but actually they didn't happen billions of years ago. And it's, it's easy to see how these things could come about, like the Grand Canyon, by the flood. The flood, just water running off, creates this, this canyon, and it, does, it doesn't take centuries and centuries, it just happens. And uh, that, that's a massive, that's a massive thing when you think about the whole world being covered. Then you think about the Lord bringing the mountains up and the valleys 
Lori Duval is in a lot of the water. There's a lot of water underneath the earth. And uh, it's just really quite amazing. God is in charge. And he doesn't make mistakes. And he, he's, not, he's not getting our opinion about what he's going to do and how he's going to. He knows what he's going to do. And he's told us what he's going to do <laughs> in many respects. And uh, so we, we, don't, we don't stand in judgment of him. Per se, because he is right. We are we submit to him and we come to him and we thank him for who he is. He is the one who brought judgment. That's a warning to me. He brought judgment upon these angels, and now he says he brought judgment upon the ancient world, and yet at the same time, he's able to save Noah and his family uh, from the through the flood like that. And then we'll look at one more quickly because we're getting near the end. Let's, let's just stop here at this point, and we'll come back next time to the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, um, which is a good illustration. Again, I can I, I do a lot of watching of the National Geographic and History Channel because they're they're very interesting, but they're all done from an evolutionary standpoint, so it's a lot of garbage in there. But it's interesting to see the evidence of the destruction of they take place around the, the Dead Sea and they found ashes and things like that that give, that give evidence of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know that the judgment that is brought upon Sodom and Gomorrah uh, is still to this day, people refer to Sodom as the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and homosexuality. And God did bring judgment upon them. And uh, that's, that's, a, that's a clear indication, I think, of the power of example. That, that kind of that kind of judgment that, that God brings upon nations, upon people, he, he doesn't take it lightly. In fact, they, Paul says in Romans that uh, that sin is a sin that gives evidence within itself. It's just a, it's a, it's a, an easy sin to see. We, we, and you, let me just say this too, because you can get the idea. You think that I'm I hate homosexuals. I have uh, a number of friends that have uh, work that I've gotten to know that are homosexual. And um, they're not, they don't go around advertising or anything. They've, I've talked to them and they know what I, where I stand and stuff to some degree. But they need the Lord. God loves them, you see. God cares for them. And so um, you can't reach them if you ostracize them and tell them that they, that you can't, I don't want to talk, I don't want to have anything to do with you. You can't do that. I'm, I've, I think I've had prayer meeting praying for uh, a person. She says her name is Stephanie. I really think she's a man, but she's, uh, she's I've seen her several times. She's come through the line. And she's, um, she just, she, she, uh, she needs some life to her life. She's just uh, really without hope by herself. And so I've, I asked her her name, she told me. So I'm, I've been praying for her. And uh, I've had, we prayed for her the other night. Remember that? We prayed for um, but I'm going to try to get her to come to Boston. We start doing that. Give her a car and see if she'll come. And if you see her, she really, she, she dresses with a dress, uh, dress like that, but she looks like the, the hands and everything. She looks like a man. And I think, I think she even has a beard. And so, anyway, um, we need to reach people. God loves people. The day of judgment is coming. But right now is the day of grace. And so we want to be 
We want to extend people because all of us are sinful. All of us have rebellion. Every single one of us are sinful and wicked um, before God. And it's in God's mercy. If he waited for us to become presentable to him before he saved us, we'd all be lost, especially. And I, I uh, just... I, I knew I knew that the Lord wanted me to give my life to him a long time before I did. And uh, he is merciful and gracious. And uh, I'm so glad he is. And we have to forever to be thankful to him and to praise his name for who he is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Uh, thank you for warning us through Peter of these judgments that are coming. And thank you for Thank you for your care, that you do care for us. And um, we, look at, we look at examples in the scripture of people that are lame, lying by the door of the temple, or blind, uh, and Jesus comes and talks to them and stuff. And we look at these kinds of people, and we, they become like little heroes. We feel sorry for them, and we want to help them, and we thank you for the fact that you do that, but when we run across them in real life, at least it is with me, we don't have that type of sympathy for them. We want to get away from them and walk around them, and uh, yet, at the same time, you love them. And so I pray that you'll help us not to, not to be guilty of, of passing judgment before the time on the people around us. We know that we are living in a world that is fallen, and we know that we're living in a world that is rebellion against you. And we see that. I especially see that a lot in the news. A lot of political stuff that's going on. And it does make me angry. But at the same time, you're a God of mercy. And uh, we want to reach people. And so I pray that you'll help us to be sensitive to those around us. And to be your voice of mercy and grace and help to those around us that are lost. And uh, that we might, we might be a source of, of life to those that are dying. I pray in Jesus' name with thanksgiving.